When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Like, I'm, um, I'm kind of less familiar with, with okay. this one. So, so you kind of give me this brief So let me give you a brief. So... It's the idea that in the 60s, Britain was modernising, rebuilding its cities, and it had all these historic, old, pretty cities that were kind of in a f***ing awful state. Like, no one really wanted to live in the centre of them. No one was doing any business in the centre. You wanted your big, new, white heat of industry complex on the edge of town. You wanted to move to Croydon, or you wanted your office in Leeds. So you had places like York, or Bath, or Chichester just kind of rotting in a way that's kind of hard to imagine now that they're tourist centres. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, so they had almost no one living in the centre of them. The middle classes had fled, but they're not like massive cities which get all the attention. So basically what I'd say, this is about how a conservation movement crept up on these cities. This is an unfashionable bit of architectural history because no one really talks about it because Mm. it's about twee, Brexity kind of cities. But there are also places that people like to go to. Um, and they were really in a f***ing awful state. Something that occurs to me is a good counterexample in Coventry. Yeah. That kind of well, I mean, the Germans it. kind of like did their best with that. No, like this is... I, ah, I was up there. Ah, 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 ah. As you, like, the, the guy who's now in charge of regenerating it was telling me, like, we like to tell everyone it was the Germans, but actually it was the council in the 30s that already f***ed it. <laughs> like, it's like we're a car manufacturing town. We don't have enough roads. Let's demolish some of this lovely historic city centre and build roads. That is the key theme that is the same with York. It's basically, the theme is when smaller historic cities could not imagine themselves as anything other than manufacturing hubs. So York viewed itself as a manufacturing city that happened to have some old... Does that make sense? Yeah. It's hard to imagine now. Yeah, same it's as... completely counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah. And they were like, well, we quite like some of the old stuff, so we better do something about it, but we're really here to make railways. Okay. Cool. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metro podcast. I'm John. You're you're probably wondering what that intro was all about. Well, that was me talking to this week's guests when he came in to record ooh, months ago now. And the truth is that I was editing the tape and I found stuff in that conversation I'd wanted to come back to and record it for real. Um, for whatever reason, I forgot. And we just didn't do that. So I tried to cut it together with the main interview and I couldn't make that work either. So eventually I just decided to leave it as it was because surely if there is one advantage a podcast has over a radio show, it's that we can do whatever ridiculous things to the format we like and it's still okay. 
So, this week's show, this week only, has a cold open, because why not? Anyway, that's, that's quite enough of me being meta. You're probably wondering who our mystery guest is, so go on, tell us. I'm Jim Watson. I'm the political editor of BuzzFeed UK, who, in addition to an unhealthy interest in railways, has an unhealthy interest in historic architecture. Okay, so we're here today to answer a question for the ages, which is, why is York nice while Wakefield is horrible? <laughs> You're going to get so many letters of complaint. I know, we, 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 we offend Yorkshire in most episodes of this podcast these days, because you know, Steph is a sort of mad Mancunian. So anyway... Um, well, I better declare my interest. I grew up near York and it's my home city and I do have a deep sense of civic pride. But it is one of those like nice, slightly Brexity, cute British cities that has sort of the sort of place you can go for a weekend away and everyone wanders around and goes, oh, have you gone to the Yorvik Centre? Oh, have you gone to York Minster? And it's kind of seen as a sort of slightly chocolate box kind of place. But in the 60s, cities like York were really crumbling and it's not very fashionable when you talk about 60s architecture to concentrate on the historic stuff because we tend to think of it as the sort of Harold Wilson, uh, White Heat, we're going to have a new age, we're going to do modernism, we're going to do new, new clean concrete lines. But a lot of the modernist architects were really worried about what was going on with historic cities in Britain. Um, and so what I want to just quickly explain, um, because I don't think many people are aware of this, is how much effort was put in by the British government in the 60s to try and stop historic cities in the UK basically falling apart. And Wakefield was massively demolished in the city centre. It had a really historic centre. You wouldn't know that really if you went there today. There's only a few bits remaining. But somewhere like York or somewhere like Chester or somewhere like Bath survived pretty well and it didn't happen by chance. And that's the one thing that I want to get across. It didn't happen by chance. Okay, so let's let's start with the history. Like, what were these places like in you know in Harold Wilson's time? What were they like when the Beatles were still playing? Well, they were hardly they were hardly the worst place in the UK, but they'd often have some slum housing somewhere. But particularly the historic buildings, people just didn't really want to live in them a lot of the time. City centre York had you know sixteenth, seventeenth century buildings that were basically abandoned on the upper floors. You might have someone trading on the on the ground floor, but these places viewed themselves a lot of the time as industrial cities. York, for instance, didn't view itself as a tourist or residential place. It viewed itself as a place that made chocolate, that made railways, that made stuff. And sometimes this historic city that it was left with was holding it back in some senses. So there was a big move to wide-scale demolish large chunks of the city, to put a ring road round it, to make things easier to get around, to make manufacturing, to make industry better. And the city centre, the historic core, the bit that people wander around and put photos of on Facebook, was being left to rot in a lot of senses. You had, you know, scrap metal yards next to the cathedral... You had sort of an absence of people living in the centre. You only had three and a half thousand people living in the absolute city centre. And the place was kind of dying and it was being strangled by cars and it was being strangled by a lack of investment and a lack of people living there. Was this just that the buildings that were already there were just literally not up to modern standards? Like people weren't living in these old houses because there was no heating or something. Is that what we're talking about here? Yeah, and, what, and why, if you're the landlord, why invest in it? You've got this crumbling building. You've got a pittance of a rent being paid. And really, it would often be easier just to knock it down and start again. 
But that's even if there was the demand for it, which often there wasn't. And the thing with York is that though it's a really pretty city, there's not loads of buildings which are of themselves amazing. There's quite a few. But the real thing that gives it beauty is the city as a whole, the streetscape, the townscape. And that wasn't really something that was protected. So what changed? Like, why didn't York end up being sort of demolished and rebuilt from scratch? Well, what I kind of like about this story, and which is the sort of paradox of it all, is it was done by a Labour government, but it was done by the sort of Labour politician who was so elite you wouldn't believe it. So you had Richard Crossman, you had um, a guy called Lord Kennett. So they were in charge of the government side of things, and they were both proper elite. I mean, we're talking, you know, inherited titles and things like that. And they decided that there was a problem and that they were going to help solve it. So they commissioned these reports, these four reports on Bath, Chichester, Chester and York to try and work out what do we do as a government to learn about conservation? Because it just wasn't really a thing. It wasn't an idea of how do you save a city as a whole? How do you save a townscape as a whole? This is an age when Jane Jacobs is just over in New York trying to fight against highways being put through Manhattan. This is a time when people are only just starting to think that there might be something worth saving in a sort of ill-defined community and an ill-defined set of buildings that isn't just the big monument. And so they commissioned these reports, the Labour government at the time, to try and work out what should be done on an individual case level. And then the idea was that these four cities would then feed up into some sort of national framework. And in York, they basically hired this uh, modernist architect to go and just sit there. He was called Lord Isha, and he was sent up there to basically go and find out what do we do. And he was, the first thing he was told by the council was, we don't really need you, thank you very much, why are you here? Excellent stuff. Um, and then he went and basically walked around, and he just went, it's pretty all right here, you just need to fix everything up, and you need to get people in, and you need to get cars out. And that basically, it's like deeply unsexy to say pedestrianisation is cool, but it really does save cities. It's the sort of thing that means that you end up having a pint on the street. It's the sort of thing that means you actually want to go shopping on somewhere rather than trying to dodge cars as you're going along. It's the sort of thing that actually gets people into city centres. So he sat there and he came up with this massive report which proposed closing the city to cars. It proposed getting rid of lots of the light industrial buildings in the city centre and replacing them with housing. And that's one of the key things that helped make York into, quote, a nice place, which is, in many respects, a good thing. And that also led to things like conservation areas where you ended up restricting development based on an area being generally nice rather than because it had something particularly attractive in it. How did he sell the council on this? I mean, if they didn't want him there in the first place, and they were presumably... I mean, this was the age of the car, right? So, yeah. like, how how did he persuade the powers that be that actually you're getting it wrong? This is how he should do it. So the story, and this is the real issue at the heart of all conservation, is it's almost always done by patrician elite types trying to do what's best for the city. So the people who commissioned it at government level were Labour, but they were, my God, they were elite. The people carrying it out were definitely elite. I think we're talking, you know, two old Etonians out of three. And then the council level, they weren't interested, but the grandees, the sort of churchy types of York, they were the ones who put up the money to fund it. So actually it was sort of civic society that ended up pushing it. I mean, this sounds like a great success story then. I mean, York is now considered one of the nicest cities in Britain, right? It's a very popular place to, to live. 
what's the problem? The problem to my mind is that in all the cases in Bath and York, you've ended up creating these very nice places with very strict rules on what you can and can't do. And that's maintained them. They've made money available to fix up places. You've made them into, quote, nice places. You can go for a weekend away. There's hotels. Tourists who really even weren't going to these cities now flood in so much that it's almost a complaint that too many jobs are based on tourism. And that's basically it. It's who is the city for? Is it for the middle class that can afford to live in these nice big houses in the city centre and who can benefit from people coming up there and house prices going up? Or is it for the people who used to work in the industries around these places who now there's sort of a mentality of development is bad, will ruin the centre if we develop? who then can't get housing. So you end up with housing crises in these places because because perversely they're so nice, but there's also that mentality of we shouldn't develop them. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying that York is, has the most expensive houses in the north of England, doesn't it? It's... Probably not quite in the north of England, but it, it, it's getting there. I'd have thought Cheshire will still be uh, giving it a run for its money. I've but... got an idea. It's York and Harrogate are the two really bad ones. And, but like they're... they're... So out of line with those of the other cities around there. They're, it's a huge, huge gap. I mean, what's the solution, though? I mean, we, we're not kind of coming full circle and saying, actually, they should bulldoze York and replace it with apartment blocks, right? So what what do you do about the housing crisis in a place like York? What you do is you build more bloody houses. That's uh, as, Yeah, as but where? On the outskirts, there's loads of land around York. There's loads of fields where you could easily put hundreds, even thousands of houses, but... The reaction when the council proposed doing that was so extreme. We're full. Houses uh, houses aren't needed here. Uh, we can't get a place in schools. And the main thing, the main complaint, and I don't know whether it is the same for other historic cities, but it's quite funny to hear this in the north, is Londoners are coming here and buying up our houses. Because if you sell a house in London, you could end up living in a mansion in York. And that's what people are doing. So they're moving up here. And the complaint I keep hearing whenever I go back home is Londoners are moving up here. Londoners are, are buying up all our houses. And so the issue is, weirdly, we need to sort of stop the Londoners rather than we need to build more houses. Yeah. So we started with a question, which is why, why is York nice and Wakefield isn't? I'm kind of interested in the cities that didn't do this as well. Like, I mean, Wakefield is obviously not in the four you listed in your report there. Yeah. But like, was there a reason that it didn't come off in other places? I, just, I, th- I think I genuinely, when I sort of spent some time studying this, the main thing was when you had a really patrician, frankly, arsey elite <laughs> in a town who'd kick up a fuss when something was knocked down, then the city centre and the town centre tended to survive. And then you go over to places like the mill towns of West Yorkshire and, you know, they've got beautiful buildings, but often it's like the town hall standing on its own next to a dual carriageway or... Some cinemas standing there, but it's not quite survived. But fundamentally, you can't force people to live in the city centre. And those places did explode. They had way more 60s housing than a lot of places like York did. And the end result is they expanded then and lost their core. Now, I'd say that basically we've preserved the core of most of these historic cities now, and now they need to expand. But I can see why there's that reactionary impulse. Yeah, the the thing I find interesting about your... I spend a lot of time playing with stats on, on cities because, you know, hey, hey, it's a living. Um, but the number of times you're looking at a data set and three cities that are very, very similar are Oxford, Cambridge and York. Mm. And, you know, York, York University is now an incredibly good university, but it's not one of those kind of historic ones in the same way. But it does, on a lot of statistical basis, it does kind of fall into that exact same category. 
Yeah, I mean, the phrase that used to be said about York was it was poor, pretty and proud. That it was the sort of place where ambition would go to die and you slightly it slightly slipped off the map. And then in the last... I mean, it's only 15 years ago that down by the river you'd have warehouses that were falling apart and undeveloped. And now you've got million pound flats in them. I mean, it really has come from nothing to that in the space of 15 years. Um, and the real thing is a sort of slight mix of what's happening in London, where you're seeing wealthier people moving into the centre, which is pushing people who used to be able to live there affordably, have a nice life, go to the shops. They're being pushed out. And that has all sorts of social issues as well. But basically, it's starting to resemble a mini London um, and with all the same problems that come with that. And it's very different to what happened in something like Manchester or Leeds, where they're still only just repopulating the inner city. So do you think these patrician types from the 60s would be pleased with how things have turned out? Or do you think they'd be horrified to see that now, now no one can afford to bloody live there? Um, I think they'd probably secretly be quite pleased. Because these were Labour people, but they... I get the feeling they'd be happier with the architecture being preserved as much as the people living there. So there's a lesson for it all. We've got something pretty. We've preserved a lot of historic cities. This process started by um, the Labour politicians of the 60s is what slightly led to this gentrified but slightly ossified sort of cityscape in a lot of these historic places. What we do about that, I don't know. So to sum up, gentrification is brilliant but also awful. I think that's a fair conclusion. Thanks to Jim for coming out to do that interview. Um, you know, we did that in, like, January, so he's almost certainly forgotten all about it. Also, I'm not sure he's forgiven me for the last time he came on this podcast and I introduced him as a nerd, even though he is very definitely a nerd. Anyway, for this week's audience participation bit, I asked, what do you think are the best and worst examples of urban regeneration schemes? Then, from my own account, I tweeted, please respond to this, I need more content, to which somebody called Bembo replied, this was in all caps, by the way, don't do it, the world needs no more content. Which, that's kind of a valid point, but nonetheless, let's, let's have some actual answers. Emma Jacobs of the Financial Times said that she's been impressed by the King's Cross redevelopment, but I'm worried it's going to become Bond Street. They have a school, social housing, but it's all flashy chains. I actually live around there, and I, I can definitely see a point, actually. The Granary Square bit is, is an absolutely lovely bit of new urban public space. You get, you literally get families taking their kids there on weekends so they can play in the fountains. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. But the whole thing is just a little bit shiny and corporate, which is, you know, that's often not great from a, from a social justice point of view. On, on a similar note, on the other side of London, David Frim wanted to slag off the Nine Elms and Battersea Power Station development, which he describes as huge opportunity squandered, overcrowded, overpriced, a lot of small businesses displaced from the railway arches. Getting a bit depressing. Uh, outside London, oh, this one's positive. Outside London, Rhys Griffiths praised the Folkestone Creative Quarter. Long-term plan to transform a pretty depressed part of town and abandon Ferryport into a thriving area full of independent businesses. So that's that's nice, isn't it? Ben B said the Liverpool docks are the best and Media City in Salford was the worst. David Scutter says, truly amazed no one said Cardiff Bay yet. It's clearly the outstanding urban regeneration project in recent times in the UK. And Skyline's regular, Angry Sai, says just about any urban regeneration scheme ever made in Brazil since they basically always make poor people homeless, lol. Last but not least, what are the best and worst regeneration schemes? Seb Patrick replies, best, Eccleston to tenant, Worst, Colin Baker to Sylvester McCoy.
Okay. Before I go, I've mentioned this before, I think, I'm moonlighting to host the politics show on an internet radio station called Fubar Radio these days. On, on last week's show, we, we were talking all about the North-South Divide, with guests including Paul Swinney from the Centre for Cities. That's, that's quite a skyline-y thing, so, you know, if you listen to this, you might get something out of that too. So, give it a go. We'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.